0: This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore the birth of global economic governance and the myth of equal sovereignty. We look at early efforts of international development and technical assistance, revealing how many of the tensions that existed in the early 1900s are still with us today.
1: This is a period in which European empire is growing um, in size and in power. And these two phenomena are interlinked, right? Um, The kind of principal infrastructures of global exchange at this time are dominated by a handful of empires kind of led by the British Empire. So kind of globalization and the expansion of empire during this period of time really kind of go hand in hand.
0: My guest is Jamie Martin, an assistant professor of history and social studies at Harvard University. His new book is called The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance. Jamie Martin, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks so much for having me. How would you describe the global economy before World War I as a starting point here?
1: Yeah, so in the years before the outbreak of the First World War, the world economy had undergone um, quite a vibrant period of integration. You see the total volume of trade growing exponentially. Uh, You see the emergence of various technological innovations that make long-distance exchange uh, easier than ever before. And historians and social scientists have, have really come to refer to the period from around 1870 to 1914 as a so-called first wave of globalization, um, as, as a period of globalization that in many ways looks similar to the kind of period of globalization of our own lifetimes, right, of the kind of late 20th century.
0: So that would mean that there were people moving across international borders and potentially people living in in other countries and financial flows happening across borders and communication and cultural exchanges taking place as well.
1: Absolutely. All of it. A period of enormous global migration, of capital flows at kind of unprecedented levels. The level of kind of foreign investment being made at this time was staggering. Um, As I mentioned, a period of of growing trade, of growing uh, communication, right, kind of Cultural exchange, and so on and so forth. I think it's also important to know this is a period of empire, right? That this is a period in which European empire is growing um, in size and in power. And these two phenomena are interlinked, right? Um, the kind of principal infrastructures of global exchange at this time are dominated by a handful of empires kind of led by the British empire. So kind of globalization and the expansion of empire during this period of time really kind of go hand in hand.
0: And so your book is called The Meddlers, and it, it really looks at this issue of sort of foreign influence within domestic policies and, and how that might compromise notions of sovereignty. So during this period, to what extent was there foreign meddling in domestic policies? Yeah. So the period of
1: the kind of, you know, pre-First World War era of the early 20th century and late 19th century, a period of time in which many formally sovereign and formally independent states nonetheless saw their autonomy chipped away at by powerful actors, by powerful foreign empires and financial institutions and so on and so forth. So you see many countries um, in Latin America, for example, in North Africa, in the Middle East, in uh, Asia and Southeast Asia, really uh, uh, face a situation where their formal sovereignty is not actually translating into kind of protection from coercion. And so take the example of somewhere like China, which over the 19th century kind of lost more and more control over domestic economic spaces, right? The Chinese state loses the ability to set its own tariff levels. Chinese resources kind of increasingly come into the hands of 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 foreign firms, kind of Chinese sources of Chinese public revenue are hypothecated to the servicing of its foreign debt, and so on and so forth. And China is a kind of perhaps the most well known example of this. But it's certainly not the only state that over this period of time, kind of increasingly, despite never losing its formal independence, kind of increasingly comes under the thumb of powerful external actors.
0: Can can we dig into this case of China a bit more? Because it's quite interesting. You know, the meddlers in this case is not simply another nation state or only another nation state, but it's also potentially, as you're saying, businesses, foreign bondholders. So how did that work in the case of China? You know, who were these foreign bondholders? What companies were holding power over the Chinese government.
1: Yeah, I mean, a variety of financial institutions. I mean, HSBC, right, the bank, (laughs) you know, that we know today, for example, you know, becomes an extraordinarily powerful actor within China by the turn of the 20th century. And, you know, in other places around the world, we see, you know, banks like uh, JP Morgan, for example, that continue to exist today, exercising these almost quasi-state functions. I mean, effectively coming to exercise control or a high degree of influence over public policy, sources of public revenue, and um, so on and so forth in, in a variety of places around the world.
0: And then World War One happened. And so, what happens in terms of sort of controls over global exchange and all of these issues of globalization? What happens when World War One starts? When this previous era that you're talking about begins to come to an end?
1: Yeah. So the First World War, the outbreak of the First World War, is an enormous shock to this world economy. I mean, there's a. Reason why people describe this wave of globalization as kind of beginning in the 1870s and ending in 1914, right? Now, there's been some pushback to thinking about the outbreak of the war as kind of bringing globalization to an end. Nonetheless, I think it's, you know, it's kind of indisputable that the outbreak of the war is an enormous crisis for the world economy. You see the creation of these wartime blockades. Right, where global exchange is effectively being weaponized. You see the suspension of the gold standard, which before the war had provided a kind of financial linchpin to the world economy. Um, and So you see the world kind of being split up into these blocks, these kind of warring economic blocks um, to a certain extent. And after the end of the First World War, there's this kind of concerted effort to reconstruct the world economy as it had existed before the First World War. to Try to return to something approximating the kind of uh, liberal globalism that had existed before the First World War. On the other hand, one thing that you see happening during the First World War is that the logistical complexities of this extraordinarily large, costly, and resource-intensive war actually lead to the creation of the first real, powerful, intergovernmental economic institutions. So there's almost a kind of a paradoxical thing at work here. While this world economy is kind of, you know, um, undergoing this extraordinary crisis, nonetheless, you see at the same time the elaboration of these kind of first muscular international economic institutions that are used by the allied powers, the allied and associated powers, Britain, France, Italy, and the United States, to coordinate their war effort against the central powers. And these kind of provide a model for post-war experiments in liberal internationalist efforts to govern the world economy.
0: You said they started sort of during the war and then they continued on. So how did it look in the beginning of the war? What were these institutions during the war?
1: Yeah, so over the course of the war, as I mentioned, the Allied powers, and then as the United States kind of joins the Allies in 1917, create these, uh, effectively these intergovernmental institutions in order to control the global exchange of resources um, among them. Energy resources like coal, Um, food, stuffs like wheat, raw materials like nitrates that are crucial for the manufacture of explosives, and a whole host of other goods. They also create an institution to coordinate um, the allocation of ships. So essentially to kind of come up with a way of efficiently sharing ships between the major Allied powers in order to transport these goods from all corners of the Earth. Of course, the Germans during the war, as is very well known, developed this incredibly lethal program of submarine warfare, targeting Allied ships. And in response, the Allies developed this kind of quite um, extraordinary system for effectively you know, kind of internationally, essentially, managing shipping. And as I mentioned, these all provide a kind of a rough and ready model that at the end of the war, many look to as they begin to dream up these projects for bringing international control to this world economy that, you know, is clearly in need of reconstruction and kind of, you know, some clearly in need of being kind of brought back together again, as it were. Um, now, the most ambitious version of these blueprints, um, are opposed by the United States and the British. But nonetheless, many of the personnel and bureaucrats who had played central roles in managing this wartime international system, effectively an international system of economic planning, many of these bureaucrats then after the war come to play important roles in institutions like the League of Nations, which in many ways directly inherits this kind of wartime, you know, system of economic governance.
0: And so how did, since the League of Nations is, of course, the ultimate and perhaps many people point to the first major international organization trying to manage world affairs, let's say, both politically and economically, how did it go about trying to stabilize the global economy after the war? So the League of
1: Nations, as you mentioned, really does develop kind of the first kind of peacetime intergovernmental economic um, institutions. And it tries to deal with a variety of different challenges, uh, some with a greater success than others. One thing that it does quite effectively is that it is, is able to collect data and sponsor economic research and try to kind of encourage member states to harmonize Technical regulations relevant to questions about international commerce. And this is a kind of an international cooperation that's deeply rooted in traditions of technocratic internationalism from the 19th century. And, you know, the point shouldn't be exaggerated, but it, you know, it's seen as being kind of less politically controversial than other economic questions, certainly less controversial than questions about trade. So the League does try to get involved in Encouraging its member states to lower their tariffs, to kind of, you know, collectively return to some kind of conditions of freer trade. But it has a lot less success in this realm. Trade is very politically explosive. I mean, in so many of its member states. And in fact, the league is designed at the Paris peace conference in 1919 in ways that uh, consciously hamstring its ability to deal with questions of trade. Um, Third area that it gets involved with, and this is something that I focus most on in my book, is in the realm of finance. And here the League actually does, in a rather kind of improvisational way, the League manages to develop extraordinary powers of financial governance. And what it does in a handful of its member states is that it oversees these financial bailout loans, um, effectively, during the 1920s that are made conditional on national programs of austerity, kind of a return to sound monetary practices, central bank independence. So, you know, it kind of developed something that looks very, very similar to an IMF conditional loan um, of much later.
0: Wow. I mean, it's quite amazing to think that League of Nations was involved in some of these conditional loan agreements in terms of finance. And in which countries were they sort of targeting these loans to at that time,
1: yeah. So at this time, at the you know in the aftermath of the First World War, there's a very clear sense that this kind of highly interventionist financial governance was only going to be applied to certain kinds of states. So the first places where these conditional loans are made are really kind of only to, uh, or at least in their kind of most robust form, only to the losers of the First World War. So the former Central Powers, Austria and Hungary, for example. Then. Uh, uh similar kind of programs are developed for other states that, while they may not have been on the side of the central powers, nonetheless um, had long already faced restrictions on their sovereignty. So, for example, somewhere like Greece, uh, which had long had uh, these kind of um, systems of discipline applied over it by institutions representing its foreign creditors. Here it was relatively easy for the League of Nations to do something similar whereas, you know, it, it never developed similar powers in somewhere like France or the United Kingdom for example.
0: So in other words when we get back to the point about sovereignty and autonomy and foreign meddling even back in the League of Nations period it was meddling was happening for states that were seen as less powerful globally. Those who were powerful, you know, would not have the same type of foreign meddling by an institution like the League of Nations.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is true in kind of both a practical and almost a formal sense, right? You know, if you're very powerful, you just simply wouldn't agree to these onerous terms if that was the kind of price of, you know, getting involved with this foreign assistance. On the other hand, there's this formal sense, or at least an assumption among legal experts and people, kind of powerful diplomatic uh, practitioners that formal sovereign equality just isn't a reality. It doesn't apply. Some states, simply by dint of how quote-unquote developed they are or by their histories, some states are just going to be more sovereign than others, that this is a kind of inherent condition in the international system. It's a feature, not a bug.
0: The other interesting thing in in your book that you point out in this period in terms of which states are being sort of meddled in is the sort of exclusion to some extent of the colonial states. So those that are actively being colonized by, say, the British Empire, they were not receiving loans from the League of Nations and being meddled in 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 that extent. So how do you make sense of that sort of disparity? And, you know, because presumably some of these colonies are also at the less powerful end of the spectrum here.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a very important distinction. It had long been a kind of an assumption of let's say kind of imperial governance that the colonies of an empire were to be protected from the reach of other empires right so if you kind of claimed this territory as your own then you were going to protect its resources or its ports or kind of its you know its strategic location or whatever it was from other rival empires from getting involved. Of course, the colony itself was not to be autonomous from alien rule. It was just that the metropole that exerted this power over the colony was to try to keep other empires from getting in as well.
0: And you mentioned just recently or just previously that Issues of development came into this as well. So it wasn't only about financial loans and conditions on those loans and demanding austerity, but there was also an element at this time of international development. Can you tell me how the League of Nations was involved in international development?
1: Yeah, so I think we tend to think of the origins of international development as we know it as mostly a post-1945 phenomenon, something that's closely tied to U.S. foreign policy. Policy during the Cold War that kind of originates um, in the Truman administration. Um, other people have also looked to kind of precursors to this and new practices of, of French and British colonial governance, particularly from the interwar period. But what I look at in the book is how international institutions like the League first begin to experiment with development. Now, I think it's important to note that the League never develops this kind of coherent, or kind of universal set of practices of development that would later characterize the work of something like the World Bank. Nonetheless, in a kind of an ad hoc and, again, improvisational way, the League does experiment with these, what I see as these kind of originary projects. So one that I focus on a lot in the book uh, takes place in Greece in the 1920s. So Greece, the kind of context for this is that Greece fights this short and disastrous war with Turkey in the aftermath of the First World War. And in the wake of the war, over a million Greek Orthodox refugees uh, leave Turkey, uh, come to Greece, and the Greek state suddenly faces this enormous challenge of essentially incorporating this huge new population of Greek citizens into what's seen as kind of productive economic activity. And what happens is that the League of Nations gets involved in kind of channeling this major foreign loan to Greece to help with uh, the settlement of these refugees. Now, it's important to note that this is not seen at the time as a humanitarian project or as a project of relief. This is seen as, um, it's described explicitly as a project of development, because what the money is to be spent on is not food or medicine or these kind of things that are seen as quote-unquote unproductive. Instead, all the money has to be spent on infrastructural development, on agricultural modernization, on, you know, kind of small-scale manufacturing all on things that are seen to enhance the productivity of this population so that they themselves can pay off the loan over time. And what happens is that as the League oversees this loan, it becomes deeply involved in a whole set of questions about the economic livelihoods of this new population. Questions about land, about uh, livestock, about rent and evictions, about taxation, all these kind of, you know, very quite intimate <laughs> questions of political economy and distribution and kind of the economic lives of these people. Suddenly, um, this foreign-run commissioner is becoming, you know, um, in some sense, the final arbiter of these questions. So, you know, it's just odd. This is not anomalous project, but it's a project that sees the League, you know, kind of getting almost to its own officials uncomfortably involved in the kind of, you know, intimate details of Greek domestic economic life.
0: From the League's perspective, did it work? Did the international development work? Did it lower the risk to make sure the loan could get repaid? And I mean, in that sort of banker's logic?
1: Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it's described, you know, by League officials involved as a success. I mean, the money is spent, uh, roads are built, farms are developed, houses kind of, you know, are, are constructed and so on and so forth. But if you look at the kind of conversations of the league officials that are involved to it, with it, um, up to the very end, they realize that the ambition of the project has kind of, you know, they've set themselves up. For disappointment, that there's almost no way in which they can effectively guarantee the repayment of this loan. The degree of uh, kind of interventionist control that this would require, you know, becomes untenable.
0: And what about in Greece itself? I mean, how did the domestic politics react to such foreign meddling?
1: Look, I mean, on the one hand, obviously, this was a kind of a project of of development that was uh, welcomed by uh, many, you know, Greek political elites and so on and so forth. At the same time, the kind of presence of this foreign-run commission um, within kind of Greek domestic arenas, you know, kind of fit into these complex political disputes on the ground during this period and provided a a kind of a common target for, you know, what we might call like, you know, populist um, figures. So, for example, this kind of self styled Mussolini figure comes to power in 1925, Teodoros Pangalos in a coup. And kind of one way that he attempts to kind of drum up popular support for himself is by constantly blaming You know, the foreigners and the kind of the presence of this foreign-run commission and Greek affairs, while at the same time, he never or, he, you know, he tries to avoid doing anything that will actually jeopardize Greece's credit, right? Because the idea is, if you actually destroy this commission suddenly Greece's international, you know, lenders are going to say, you're not getting any more loans. So, it's a, you know, it's a story that I think, you know, would become very common, um, you know, in kind of later contexts, right? You have these figures that on the one hand kind of reach out to international institutions for financial assistance. Then, you know, as this kind of interventionist program of assistance evolves, they blame the international institution while at the same time, you know, never kind of crossing the line and to actually jeopardize jeopardizing this program of assistance.
0: It's such a fascinating story of the sort of interwar period and then the League of Nations moment where this global economic governance is being constructed. And, you know, it's not done by with some master plan in mind, as you've sort of pointed out. They don't know what they're doing, and they're just sort of building it at will, and it's ad hoc and experimental. And so I just wonder, you know, to what extent can we look at that history and see some of the lessons learned reflected in the more contemporary institutions? institutions that we know of, like the World Bank or the IMF?
1: Yeah, so I think that this question that I really wrestle with in the book, you know, this question is, as this new internationalist project is emerging, these efforts to govern the world economy, um, you know, it faces this really, really difficult political challenge. How do you get sovereign states to allow an international institution or to allow institutions of international cooperation to get involved in these profoundly, sensitive and controversial questions of domestic political economy and these domestic distributional struggles. I mean, the whole issue about governing the world economy is that it's going to look quite different from other internationalist projects like preventing a war. You know, it's hard to imagine an effective system of global economic governance that doesn't involve an institution weighing in on these questions about tariffs, about, you know, taxation or monetary policy, whatever it is. And I think we're still dealing with that problem today, almost that same exact question. You know, how do you effectively have institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank perform the functions that they were designed to perform? You know, so the IMF, you know, kind of providing this financial safety net providing uh, uh, bailout loans to countries experiencing extreme financial duress. How do you have this kind of internationalist project successful while at the same time these institutions have, over time, um, acquired this quite poor reputation of being meddlers themselves, right? Of saying, you know, if you want the loan, you have to lay off a 100,000 civil servants. If you want the loan, you have to cut subsidies to fuel and public transport. You know, at the same time, jeopardize your own legitimacy with, you know... Kind of voting publics. It's an enormously fraught political issue. And I mean, look, you know, we're, we're facing right now the possibility of a, a new wave of uh, global defaults. So many countries around the world right now are experiencing extreme debt distress. And obviously the IMF is the kind of institution that's, you know, ready to step in potentially and kind of lead these programs of rescue essentially. But over the last 30 years or so, 25, 30 years, so many countries around the world have opted to turn away from the the IMF because uh, you know agreeing to the terms of an IMF loan is seen as being very 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 painful as effectively giving up control over your own domestic political economy so i think the question's more alive today really than ever
0: the other thing that really strikes me when i read your book was that you know some of the logic that we hear today about these sort of loan conditions and technical assistance and international development is all very much technocratic it's sort of not political and it that's That's sort of how it's presented. And of course, you know, we instantly see that it's, and as you're saying, it's deeply political. And that has been from, you know, these interwar period all the way to today, as you've shown. I guess the question that I have is to what extent did the people who worked in, say, the League of Nations, etc., actually believe that it was simply a technocratic issue, or did they see it was sort of a guise to use to hide the really deep, political questions that they knew existed. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: it depends on who you ask, right? I mean, certainly at the time, the League of Nations Financial Committee, for example, which is one of these kind of, you know, uh, wings of the League that deals with financial questions, you know, the way that its work is described officially and in public is as non-political. It's technical work. It's supposed to avoid questions about party conflict or kind of parliamentary goings on and so on and so forth. But many of the people in the financial committee, when you read, you know, what they're talking about behind closed doors is they're saying, we got to tread carefully because the questions that we're dealing with are of the utmost political significance. You know, how does a state tax its citizens, you know, what does a state choose to subsidize? You know, it's almost impossible to imagine something being more politically fraught on the domestic level than questions like that, right? And, you know, I think exactly as you put it, the same is true today. In a certain economic or theoretical sense, you know, of course, you know, it might make sense to say, you know, look, you're only going to get this loan if you commit to this program of austerity that will guarantee repayment of the loan, that will get your financial house in order, and that will prevent, you know, the kind of questions of quote unquote moral hazard that come from lending, but saying that that is a kind of a just a simple kind of economic decision is unbelievable to the extreme, right? The idea that you would ask a government to cut subsidies to fuel and say that's an economic decision and not a political one—it's impossible to believe. And I guess what I'm saying is that for those kind of honest <laughs> people who were kind of developing this kind of power at the very beginning, they
0: would they would admit it,
1: you know, and they understood that what they were doing was risky and that the chances of success. For it were actually quite low, given how explosive um, it was politically.
0: I'm also so amazed at how the interests of financiers have really been at the heart of a lot of these institutions, and it often goes unsaid in a way, right? Like, so reading the news about Sri Lanka today and you know the the government collapsing because of of an uproar but knowing that that country is in massive debt and interestingly if you read like the new york times the emphasis is typically on debt to china but in fact you know a, a majority of debt of the sri lankan state is actually owned by western bankers and it just it blows my mind that you know the bankers sort of get away with it in a way and and you and then reading your book you realize that That's sort of been the case for a very long time.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look, you know, there's a a recent uh, piece that was making the rounds about, you know, just how much debt of African states right now is owned to private lenders in the West, not to China. I mean, I think we have this idea that kind of fits into contemporary discourses about, quote unquote, Sino-Western competition that says, well, look, China is a kind of an irresponsible lender. Now it's getting a taste of its kind of, you know, medicine as these states default on its loans. Um, But if you actually look at the matter, it's, it's, you know, it's much more complex than this. And I think one of the other things that often goes unsaid is that one of the reasons that so many states around the world have turned to China as a lender, and one of the reasons why China has become the largest bilateral lender in the world is because China kind of made it a habit of not attaching the same conditions to its loans as the IMF. And somewhere like Sri Lanka, you know, tried to evade IMF loans by turning to China because it didn't want to kind of have to, you know, take this bitter medicine of, you know, IMF kind of demanded austerity. Now it's turning to the IMF, you know, now that it's in kind of, you know, a lot of trouble as it were. Um, but this is a kind of an important kind of uh, political context for why China has kind of assumed its power of lending that it wields today is because it's designed itself and kind of advertised itself as an alternative to IMF conditionality.
0: So, by way of conclusion, I want to actually bring up one recent critique of your book that was just published in Foreign Affairs by Bronko Milanovic, who basically, you know, he says many different things in the review, but one of them, and I think his main point, is this notion that the assumption that there's somehow some sort of sovereignty that actually really does exist, and that there's like this gold an age of sovereignty that existed before all of this foreign meddling happened. You know, how would you respond? Is he sort of misreading the the insights of your book, or does he have a valid critique?
1: Well, I think that one of the things that my book is really trying to argue is that sovereign equality has kind of always been a myth, right? Some countries simply have been more sovereign than others, and this is, as I said, you know, a, a feature, not a bug, of the international system for centuries. In many ways, one 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 kind kind of taking this argument to an extreme, you'd say sovereignty is a red herring, right? Don't just go around the world looking for states that formally, legally possess sovereignty. And that's why I speak a lot in the book about autonomy, right? The ability of a state to kind of act with some freedom on the international stage to const- to not constantly be under the thumb of its foreign creditors for example, or of powerful foreign empires. Um, and so no, I don't believe that there was ever any golden age of sovereignty quite the opposite. I mean in many ways the whole book is about how we have to get away from believing that there ever there ever was this golden age and instead to acknowledge in this kind of clear-eyed way that sovereign equality has always been a myth but these kind of struggles for autonomy are real and in certain cases they might be something that we should continue to take very seriously
0: jamie martin thank you so much for joining Fresh really a pleasure to talk today
1: thanks for having me
0: Jamie Martin is an assistant professor at Harvard University. His new book is The Meddlers. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ogunleye, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin. Phyllis Che Mensa, and José Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.